everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Frank Baumgartner. Welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. Um, so I read the book a couple of years ago, Suspect Citizens, which I think is one of the better um, police stop analyses. Um, can you kind of lay out, um, you know, what, what you would consider the critical findings of that study? Uh, sure, I'd be glad to. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, we published that book in 2018. It was based on an um, analysis of every traffic stop in North Carolina since 2002. North Carolina was the first state in the country to mandate collecting data on every traffic stop after some allegations of the possibility of racial profiling uh, in the highway patrol. And the state legislature then responded to that with the law mandating data collection. But then no one ever looked at the data. It was accumulating and accumulating for uh, over about 20 years. And uh, so finally, um, some attorneys asked me if I would have the capacity to look at it. And they gave me a copy of the data, which they had gotten from the state. And it took a while because it's a very complicated database, but we were able to do it. And the result was that book, which was based at that time on about 20 million traffic stops. So the state had been collecting this information, but no one looked at it. Uh, the bottom line, uh, I think the most important, there's a number, maybe I'll mention a few and you can follow up. First is there's a lot of stops. So we have 10 million people in North Carolina and there's one to 1.7 million traffic stops per year. So that's an awful lot of stops uh, compared to the population. Second, the stops um, are about 50% for moving violations and about 50% for things like expired tags and broken taillights. So that's a lot of non-moving violations. Third, stops are used um, as a pretext to do searches to do the war on drugs or the war on crime through using the traffic code. Um, that, I think everybody knows that, but uh, we uh, can really see it. And we can see the needle in the haystack aspect of using the traffic code as a way to ask people if you could perhaps search their car, their vehicle, or their or their body, their, their pockets uh, for drugs because we found about 3% of the traffic stops led to a search. 
about 20 to 30% of the searches lead to some form of contraband. But those contraband hits, so to speak, typically are very small amounts of contraband, so much that the person is arrested only half the time after contraband is found. So we found a lot of residue of a little bit of drug um, uh, signs of drug use, but very few cases where there was a major criminal interdiction following from a traffic stop. We also uh, found very little violence. Police are rarely attacked during a traffic stop or following a traffic stop. And we found a lot of racial bias. Black drivers were about twice as likely to be pulled over. And once pulled over, they were about twice as likely to be uh, searched. So all in all, I think we confirmed some suspicions and knowledge in minority communities. Um, and we raised a lot of issues about the inefficiency and the injustice of using traffic stops as a way to fight the war on drugs. One of the things that really struck me about um, kind of those data points, the who gets stopped, what happens after a stop and, and finding contraband is that while you're looking at North Carolina, I mean, those results, um, you know, could be uh, universalized throughout the country. I mean, it, 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 it's really not pulling up some kind of weird anomaly. No, it's not an anomaly at all. It's consistent uh, throughout the country. And I've been on a little bit of a tear of, you know, trying to find data from every jurisdiction where we can find in many different states around the country. The entire state of Illinois also has a very large data collection effort, almost as long as North Carolina's, and we see the same thing. Every state where we find it, and I've looked in some jurisdictions in California and Texas and Florida, Connecticut, we see the same thing. It's just a matter of uh, how extreme is the racial disparity, and is the racial disparity particularly strong among um, African-Americans, or is it more uh, Latinx individuals who are being targeted? So why is this happening? I mean, why do we still see in 2023 such stark uh, racial disparities? And I've mentioned before we got on, there was an interesting article in the San Francisco Chronicle this week, um, which uh, showed about 40 different jurisdictions in California and um, the range was about five to one disproportionate black to white in places like San Francisco and Oakland and Sacramento, so big cities in, in California. And then some of these smaller cities uh, were as much as 10 to one. Uh, why do we see that kind of disparity? Well, uh, there's a great book about um, the transformation of policing that took place with the invention and expansion of the use of the automobile. And it's called Policing the Open Road. And it's by a law professor named Sarah Seo. She's now at Columbia University. And, and it, it's fascinating to read. But um, when the car was invented and came into wide use, there, there rose a legal challenge, a, a question, and the question was, what's your right to privacy? How much privacy should you expect to have when you're in your automobile? Should your automobile be kind of like your house, where you should have a very strong sense of privacy and expectation of privacy? 
or is it like a street corner where you're standing in public, but you may not be doing anything illegal, so you have a certain degree of privacy expectation, but not as much as in your house? And her answer was, no, your car isn't similar to either of those two, according to the courts. Your car is a crime scene. You have no expectation of privacy as long as you're driving, because if you're driving a car, you're breaking one of the 543 different laws that regulate uh, cars. Um, so you're either, you have a shadow extending over your license plate, you have a crack in one of the um, um, brake lights, you have an air freshener dangling from your rearview mirror, you're speeding, you're touching the white line, you're swerving. There's so many ways that the police can decide that um, you're, break, you're violating a law. And once you violate a law, you no longer have the right to privacy. So I think that's the reason the police find the traffic code to be uh, a gift from on high uh, for any kind of conversation they wanna have with an individual. They don't have the right to do that to you if you're in your home or just standing on a street corner, but if you're driving a car, the police have the right to uh, arrest you. So in your view, is racial profiling something that's real? Um, you know, because I hear a lot of cops say, well, you can't really tell the race of the person that's driving the car. And that may be true at night, but certainly during the day, you can tell a little bit. Uh, what, what's your view on that? Yeah, there's a lot of ways to proxy race. And the main way is to go into a black or brown neighborhood and, and pull people over in that neighborhood. Uh, the police know the neighborhoods and the areas and location is everything in policing, just like in real estate. So I feel like it's disingenuous to suggest that the police have no idea who they're pulling over. I do think that they're accurate in saying that, you know, they don't always first look in the driver's window and see what race the person is, and then second, decide whether or not to pull them over. Uh, but if you're gonna police uh, a certain neighborhood, which, which the police might refer to as a high crime neighborhood, uh, you're gonna come up with a lot of minority drivers. So I think it has to do with differential policing by time of day um, and by neighborhood. And there's also a second level to the data, right? So not only are we looking at pulling people over, but then there's the decision, do you or do you not search the vehicle based on the traffic stop? That's the really interesting part because if the issue is that you made an illegal right turn, the officer can give you a ticket for that and be on his way and let you go on your way maybe frustrated, but not, um, you know, it doesn't have to lead. There's no logical reason why that illegal right turn needs to lead to a request to search your car to see whether you have an illegal gun or some contraband drugs. So, but um, it turns out, <coughs> excuse me, that the courts have allowed police officers to ask questions about where you're going, what you're doing, they're not allowed to extend the length of the traffic stop beyond what is reasonable to check your license and your driver's license and your um, registration. But during that momentary uh, conversation or that short conversation, they can ask you, and you don't have to respond, 
but they can ask you questions. And so they use that as the opportunity to ask questions about, do you have any drugs in the car? Do you mind if I search? And it can be quite an intimidating situation. So a lot of people agree to that. What you find is that Blacks especially are disproportionately searched. And when they are searched, they're finding contraband less frequently, somewhat less frequently than they are with white people. That's right. There's a little bit of a lower contraband hit rate for Black and Hispanic drivers, a little bit of a higher hit rate for white drivers. It's not dramatic, but it's there in the data. It's consistent with what people have found across the country. What we take from that is a suggestion that the police are using a different threshold of suspicion. When there's a white driver, they have to be a little bit more suspicious. And when there's a black or brown driver, their their level of suspicion um, is uh, doesn't have to be as high before they ask to search the car. Uh, I should also mention that it's very gendered. These things are true among male drivers. They're less so among female drivers. For whatever reason, the police do not associate women with the practice of concealing drugs. And uh, I'm not sure why that is. Um, and, you know, again, I, I think one of the interesting things here is that these stops generally are, are not safety stops. So they're basically pulling people over uh, in hopes of being able to find something bigger than just, hey, they failed to signal when they turned or they were driving two miles an hour faster than the speed limit. Yeah, there's two kinds of traffic stops, um, traffic safety stops, which, you know, you could think of somebody, we've all seen reckless drivers, and I've seen way too many reckless drivers who are going 30 miles and over the speed limit or something like that. In my opinion, those people need to get a ticket. I mean, it, it's unsafe to see them on the road driving like that. Um, and so that's one aspect of traffic control is to keep the road safe from bad drivers or drunk drivers. But like I mentioned about 50% of all the traffic stops in North Carolina don't relate to even a moving violation. They relate to um, an equipment violation, which is usually somebody driving an old car that's uh, a, really a poverty assessment uh, or it's an expired tag. Um, so I would say it's it's not the case that every moving violation is a legitimate stop because you could barely come to an almost complete stop at a stop sign and that's a technical violation of the law so the police could pull you over for that but he might not really be interested in making sure that everybody comes to a complete stop he just might want to have a conversation with you and you gave him the the opportunity to do that by not coming to that complete stop so the traffic code is a policeman's dream it allows him to have a conversation with whomever he wants and so we're starting to see, um, you know, in some communities, I, I know San Francisco earlier this year um, passed uh, a pretty sweeping uh, uh, revision to uh, pretext stops. Um, Berkeley and Oakland have also uh, passed their own versions um, where, you know, 
and, and there are different variants of it. Um, you know, in some cases, um, you know, what what they say is, you know, there there's certain things that you can't just stop a vehicle for if it's a non-safety factor. In San Francisco, you can stop them, but you can't uh, you can't search the vehicle um, to try to eliminate um, you know uh, the pretext for the pretext stop. Um, I, I mean, is this something that can solve this problem? It can be very helpful. I think it has to enter into the culture of policing. Uh, in my opinion, there's a lot of misestimation about the value and the cost of pretextual traffic stops. I think in the police culture, because it goes back to at least to the 1970s, there is uh, there there police officers are trained some things that I just don't think are true. One bit of police training that's very common is that uh, the traffic stop is an extremely dangerous situation for the police officer. So the police officer needs to be on guard because who knows when the driver's gonna come out with a gun and shoot you. So there's a lot of caution and anxiety on the part of the police, which can lead to some uh, bad situations where statistically, I mean, it's true that it has happened that there have been you know, some tragedies associated with traffic stops from the side where the driver kills the police officer or shoots the police officer or assaults the officer. That does happen very rarely. But we have 20 million traffic stops in our country every year. So naturally there's gonna be a few situations that go bad. So one is that traffic stops are dangerous. Another is uh, traffic stops have high crime fighting, va crime fighting value that we can interdict crime by doing these searches associated with the routine traffic stop and that that's a good police practice. And I would urge any police leader to count up the numbers of how many, really what whatever the police might call high value arrests occurred and ask themselves seriously, did that come from a traffic stop? And the answer would be very rarely. Now it does happen occasionally but it's quite rare mathematically. And I, so I think the police systematically overestimate the value of traffic stops. And the last thing I would say is they underestimate the humiliation and the emotional trauma associated with the driver understanding that they were illegally profiled and there's nothing they can do about it. That trauma is real and it's targeted, it's, it's isolated within minority communities and most middle-class white Americans are unaware of it. We haven't suffered it because we don't get these kinds of profiling situations. So, but, but in minority communities, uh, it's a serious trauma and it's unfair and people know it's unfair. Yeah, along those lines, um, you know, I recall um, almost 15 years ago now, um, I'm in a college town and, uh, uh, I was interviewing a prospective intern. Uh, it turned out he was a, a linebacker for the college football team, African-American. And I, I asked him, I said, hey, have you ever been pulled over by the police? And he said, we get pulled over so often that we just stop going out um, because we just didn't want to have to get pulled over by the police every single time we went out, especially as a group of of uh, young young men, and and that that was a real a real factor. Like 
you know, it, it was very traumatizing. He was, he, his complete demeanor changed when I asked him that question. Yeah. And I've, I've heard similar stories in particular from football players because they might have a bunch of buddies who are also the size of Mount Rushmore. And when the police pull that car over, the police get nervous. And you don't want to have a bunch of nervous police officers standing around a bunch of big um, African-American young men. It, bad things can happen. And so I totally understand what your your student was saying. And I've heard similar stories, very scary stories. Um, and it it's unfair. And, you know, people's physical size matters to the police. They respond to people differently if they're big or little and uh, consider them to be a physical threat or not. And then they respond to people differently if they're young or old, black or white, male or female. And so that guy was hitting uh, negative on every aspect. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, you, you had mentioned, you know, the very low yield of of these searches. And, you know, it, it got me thinking, this is similar to the same problem of stop and frisk, uh, where, uh, you know, you're disproportionately targeting Blacks um, and, and Hispanics. And, you know, the crime fighting utility um, is, is completely outweighed by the amount of harassment that the target population feels when, when they're treated to this? Yeah, I think that one of the big questions is, um, why do we allow this? And I think the answer to that question is, it's not happening in the middle-class neighborhoods. If this were happening to middle-class white Americans, people would be outraged. And it's not. And I think there's a very serious empathy gap where middle-class white people just don't think the police could possibly behave that way. But a lot of us are having our eyes opened by some of these videos. And um, it's unquestionable that terrible things are happening. Um, and I think people uh, on this, like if you drive by and you see that there's a traffic stop occurring on the side of the highway or the side of the street in your neighborhood, People look to see, you know, who is that being pulled over? And I think when a middle-class white person sees um, uh, a, a minority individual being interviewed by the police in a stop and frisk, people jump to conclusions that have been driven by our media and our expectations and our culture that, well, then there must have been some reason why the officer pulled that man over or asked to talk to him on the sidewalk. And uh, I think we're, we need to understand that, no, there doesn't have to be a reason at all. It could be complete racial profiling. And the fact that it doesn't happen to middle-class white people doesn't mean it's not happening to somebody else. But So we need to really understand from the other perspective how scary the police can be. Yeah, in fact, um, you know, I have the opposite reaction now. Uh, when, I, when I see somebody pulled over and it's invariably a black or brown person. I'm like, oh, more racial profiling. Yeah, well, you run a podcast on criminal injustice. So I don't think you're the average American. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but, um, you know, 
One of the really interesting things is when, when you look at the police shooting data, the, the data on officer involved shootings and killings and things like that, it seems like two of the bigger areas are, uh, first of all, you know, mental health calls, and second are, are traffic stops. And um, it just seems like if we could figure out those two factors, we could probably cut that 1,000, 1,100 people shot and killed every year by the police, uh, maybe as far as in half. Absolutely. I mean, I think it would be a wonderful thing if we could uh, reduce the footprint of the police uh, in order to find another agency or somebody who doesn't necessarily carry a gun, uh, doesn't have the power to arrest you, uh, to give you a traffic ticket for speeding or for rolling through a stop sign without coming to a stop. That's the challenge. I think a lot of people are talking about these alternative ways of keeping our community safe. I think, you know, if you think about it from the perspective of highway safety, the danger is crashes. We want to reduce crashes and reduce the number of people who get injured by being hit by a car, whether they're a pedestrian, a cyclist, or a, in a car themselves. And um, the question is, are these police practices helping to keep us safe in our, as, as people using the highways or, or streets? And then I'm quite convinced that they're not keeping us safe in terms of interdicting crime because the, the numbers just don't add up. So what are we getting for this diversion of the highway safety function into the war on drugs? I would say we're not getting much and we need to look at other alternatives. Yeah, and along the same lines, I mean, one of my reactions uh, to the Tyree Nichols killing was, okay, so, we now have body-worn cameras in more than half the departments in the country, and probably, um, you know, when you look at big departments, it's something like 80 to 90 percent. And so the vast majority of police people uh, have cameras on them. And yet, when we look at the data on police shootings, um, those numbers haven't gone down, and, and maybe they're even creeping up. Um, and so, I, I mean, and we have this data now on police stops for, for years, and I'm sure you know this as well as I do. For years, the cops said, oh, no, we don't racially profile, and, and you, know, the, you know, we're just pulling people over. And yet, you know, as we've gotten this data, it's really matched what we've heard anecdotally for years. I mean, the, there's nothing that's a surprise in suspect citizens other than the fact that the data shows exactly what we thought for all these years. Yeah, I, I one time gave a talk in a community uh, event where there was a black man in the audience about my age and in his 60s. And uh, he said, with all due respect, professor, I can't believe you bothered to write this book or someone paid you to write this book because you haven't told me anything I didn't already know. And uh, I was like, yeah, true. I can't, I can't say that you wouldn't have known this if you've been living it. But then another uh, white woman said, oh, no, I'm totally shocked at what I'm hearing from the professor. And uh, so we had a funny conversation about whether this is obviously what we already know or whether this is something that is uh, new. 
I think it's important to put some numbers on things that are anecdotes. And so that's kind of my job as a social scientist. But um, I think we're also now at a point in the policing community where the numbers are very clear and they're ubiquitous throughout the country. There is racial profiling and there are disparate levels of contact with the police. There's no question about that. Then the question is, is it making us safer? I think the answer to that is no. Uh, is it driven by differential rates of criminal activity? That's the key thing that the police would point to. And I think the answer to that is no. Um, but, um, and then does it help, does it, what does it do to our sense of citizenship and belonging? That's something that the police are not asking. And the answer is it's causing people not to feel like citizens. They're not full citizens, they're suspects. And uh, I think that's a tragedy. So we have to really pay attention to the costs and the benefits of these policies and bring more voices to the table and uh, try to get the police to change their behaviors. It's clear that the, the, the body cameras have not changed the behaviors, although occasionally some of the video that comes from a body camera when it's made available to the public has been quite shocking and has it should have caused people to question you know the official version of some of these events have been described in initial police reports and then the video comes out and the police report is very inaccurate and not just sloppy but really inaccurate and false and we saw that with uh, tyree nichols we did so what are your conversations like with the police are they still reluctant to acknowledge that there's a problem here or are they more resigned to that and now trying to figure out a way to kind of make things work i would say uh it's like the stages of grief uh you go through many stages the first time we published a report which was just 12 pages of data the north carolina association of chiefs of police and Association of Sheriffs hired a consultant to try to take us down. And this consultant, I don't know how much she was paid. She wrote a 120 page report about my 12 page report to, and came to the conclusion that my analysis was quote unquote, deeply flawed. And then that was the talking points that the police and the sheriffs used. And the deep flaw in our data was that we had estimated the um, disparity at 77% increased likelihood of search for the black driver compared to white. And we had not excluded the passengers from the car. And that was actually a mistake on our part. So the revised number was 75% rather than 77%. When we completed the book, based on a few more years of data and more complete analysis, we of course fixed that problem. And the final number was 96% disparity. <laughs> so the first stage of grief is denial and refusal to recognize the truth. And that's where they were at first. The second stage was to recognize that there are statistical patterns that aren't very well explained, but to say that they must be explained by crime. And, I, and a lot of police are still at that point. They don't think that they're doing anything wrong. They're doing what they learned in the police academy. They're following established procedures. 
and these civil rights people asking these questions are annoying and they're just not familiar with the realities of police. I think there's a lot of reaction like that. Then there's a third reaction, which is maybe we need to look at some of our practices and, tr and experiment with some possible alternatives. And so I think we see a bifurcation now. Some police departments are pulling, you know, digging in their heels, refusing to reform, and others are asking some questions about their officers. Uh, I have seen some police leaders, you know, using this type of data to try to supervise or to understand what's happening on the ground, that they don't want some rogue officer creating a problem for them. And it is quite shocking how much difference there is in the behavior from officer to officer. I mean, I've looked at the data for officers um, who have large numbers of traffic stops. And there's uh, and we can look at such simple things as what's the percent of time they give you a warning rather than a ticket? And look only at officers who have hundreds of speeding traffic stops. And it might not surprise you, but it surprised me that we found officers who never ever gave a ticket only ever gave warnings. And we found officers who never gave a warning. They gave a ticket every single time, black, white, Latinx, Asian, didn't matter. And we found officers at every point in between. And I just think if these were school teachers rather than police officers, the principal of that school would be in that classroom telling them to teach the, to the curriculum, to follow some kind of norm associated with how they've been instructed. But policing has a great deal of discretion built into the culture and police officers don't expect to be supervised. And to tell you the truth, I think they're all over the map. I agree. Um, so it's interesting. Um, when the Chronicle article came out, I screenshot the uh, chart and sent it to my police chief, um, you know, who's who I would describe as kind of a middle of the road guy. He, he's not one of these hardcore denialists, but he's also not a hardcore reformer. Um, and his reaction was it's complex because it raises the same issues of benchmarking um, that have long existed. And then he said something really interesting that he's spoken uh, with uh, some of the uh, stat people for the AG's office and also um, from Harvard and Stanford. And, um, you know, he believes that they don't have enough stops each year to draw any meaningful conclusion because the data points are so low. It, it seems like that is more of an excuse than anything else, but I'm interested in your reaction to that. And he's talking about Davis, California, doesn't have enough stops? Um, to some extent, but... Yeah. Well, I think that... Davis doesn't look any different than anywhere else. Yeah, I think that it's fair. I mean, I think that we, whenever we criticize our local police chief, I think we also have to recognize that it's nothing personal. There's, I mean, these problems are nationwide. Every single police department has these problems. It's part of the culture and it's part of our American history and our society and the inequalities that are in our society are built into so many aspects. 
So I think it is important to kind of de-escalate the conversation to recognize that, no, we're not accusing you, Mr. Police Chief, of running a department that's particularly terrible. We just want you to take seriously the need to justify and to look into these issues of equity. I do think there it is very standard for police chiefs to look back and say, well, um, they call it the benchmark problem that you alluded to and say, well, I can't help it. Maybe there's outsiders from across our jurisdictional boundaries who drive into our communities and deliver drugs. And so we look for outsiders and many of those might be minorities. I looked at every single police department in the state of North Carolina and 98% of them had higher rates of stops for black drivers than they had black people in their population, according to the census. <laughs> so either the black people are driving around at inordinate rates from community to community and being pulled over at equal rates, or the police are profiling black drivers and pulling them over more than white drivers. I'm pretty sure it's the, it's the latter, not the former. All but right. to prove it for any particular municipality is always a problem. And so if you're the one trying to um, bat off the criticisms, that's an easy way to try to bat it off, to say we don't have benchmark data about who's driving. And so collect it. Put some people on the intersections and look and get some data about who's driving. All right. Well, uh, we're about out of time. Uh, wanted to thank you for coming on and uh, sharing your insight into police stops. Uh, like I said, this is one of the areas that I've uh, been following for the last almost 20 years now. Well, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And uh, I hope some police officers and police leaders have been listening. Well, thanks. Uh, this has been Everyday Injustice. We've been talking with Frank Baumgartner, a professor of uh, social science, um, talking about police stops. This is Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mouse Quake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.